Have you ever wondered what it would be like if you had never heard the gospel message? I'm assuming that most of you have heard about the gospel message. And I know that most of you have had your lives radically changed because of the good news about Jesus. But what if it had never gotten to you? How would your life be different? How would you live differently? I think for those of us who came to the Lord later in life, that might be easy for you to picture because you might have some of those memories that are not that far long ago where you remember, whoa, I used to live like this and now I live like this. Whoa, I used to respond like that, but now I respond like this. I had a vision of life that meant it was like this and now I have a vision of life that's like that. Some of that, it might be very clear. Um, for others of us who came to the Lord early in life, you may not know the details, but you might be able to imagine how you might have ended up. But in both cases, the message and life of Jesus made it to you. A 2,000-year-old message that was passed down from person to person to person. Isn't that interesting when you think about that? Like, how did I hear the gospel message of something, this, this message that was 2,000 years ago that's changed my life now? It's, it's pretty radical. And as we've been going through the the book of Acts, we're seeing the beginnings of that happening throughout the world. How it began in Jerusalem and how then it, it spread. And here as we go through Acts, um, we're looking at Paul and Barnabas who had set out on a journey to bring the message of Jesus to places that had not heard it yet. It didn't exist in, in these places. Now, Paul and Barnabas weren't new Christians uh, in fact, by the time we get here to chapter 14, Paul had been converted probably at least 10 years earlier. Barnabas even farther back than that as they started out on this missionary journey. So they've been Christians for over a decade at least. Um, but even then, even though they had seen a lot of things, experienced a lot, these missionary journeys that they're taking would teach them new things. It would stretch their faith in ways they'd not experienced before. And today we're going to see what motivated these early pioneers of the gospel, what motivated them to push through the resistance and the adversity that they'd experience and to stay the course in sharing the gospel message. And from it, I hope that we're going to be able to come away with a fresh perspective and, and a renewed desire to minister to others and stay motivated ourselves. All right, so let's, let's dive right in here. <coughs> excuse me, to Acts chapter 14. Let's read the first seven verses. Here's what it says. It says, Now at Iconium, they, this is Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. All right, well... We've got new places, so my map lovers, I'll give you a map. Here we are. Antioch in Pisidia is where we were last week. 
All right, and from Antioch and Pisidia, they got driven out of there down to this little town called Iconium. And from Iconium, it tells us that then they got run out again and now to Lystra and to Derby. All right, we've got some other maps coming up as time goes on that you'll be able to see more where this fits, but that's ultimately where they went. This is where we were last week, and then they just took off and went this way, all right? Okay, now, this thing that we see here in these first seven verses, this is kind of the routine that these early missionaries had to deal with. They'd come to a new town, they'd preach the message, it'd have a powerful impact on the city, Many people hearing it for the good, the good news for the first time, just be, being blown away, being transformed, become believers. Then, after that would happen, um, there was also usually not only preaching and teaching, but miracles taking place. Then, they'd experience jealousy and resistance uh, to the message, and then persecution, and then threats, and then they'd escape to the next town. That seems like when you look through Acts, that's what happened over and over and over again. No matter where they'd go, it was kind of that sort of um, theme that would take place. But why did it have to be that way? Why is it, even still to this day, when people hear the gospel message, people respond very differently? Some people you talk to about Jesus and they're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Tell me about it. I want to hear about this. Other people are like, that's what I need. Please tell me more. And then other people are like, don't give me that. I don't want to hear this stuff. In fact, you say that name again, I'm going to punch you in the face, you know. <laughs> like we get different, we get completely different responses from people depending on when they hear this message. And the reason it's that way is because the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel has spiritual implications, this is not just a textbook. We don't just sit here and listen and learn history about Jesus. Yes, it's historical, but that's not what's only going on. What's going on is a spiritual thing is taking place. And the spiritual impact always meets resistance and rejection. And I think that we sometimes forget that sometimes. Because for, for some of us who have had our lives changed by the Lord... We're living life in one way, and we're like, how is it that not everybody sees it this way? How is it that people would reject this? This is where I found freedom, and I found joy, and life, and peace. I found purpose to even be here on this planet. How is it that they could resist this, or reject this? How, how does it happen? It's because there's a spiritual thing going on. It's what we talked about last week. It's spiritual blindness. There's a real spiritual battle taking place for the souls of people. It's real. Spiritual real. Why is the world full of hatred and murder and theft and war and destruction and death? Why? Because there are true powers of evil at work in the world and in the souls of people. And it's real. It's hard for us to see. It's harder for us to understand but it's real and it's happening. And this life is a spiritual battle for the hearts, the minds, and the souls of humanity. Now, we are fortunate that we live in a time and place where people probably won't try to stone us to death if we talk about Jesus. They might cuss at you, might call you some names, might not like you, might ignore you at work. They're probably not going to take you out back and try to kill you for it. Probably not. But 
the resistance and the rejection remains. This is what Jesus said about it in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus told us before he even resurrected, um, before he died, before he was, was, was killed on the cross, he already told his followers, he said, listen, this is how it's going to be. And I want you to remember these words that I'm going to tell you because it's always going to be this way. There's always going to be a spiritual battle happening. There's always going to be resistance to it. It's just the way it is. It's the way the fallen world works. So don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't even be offended. It's the way it is. So it shouldn't surprise us when people reject us, ridicule us, or are offended because of our faith. And when you think about it, it's because we're living, we're, we're attempting to live in a different way. Now, we've had the, the fortune, maybe it is, to live, <coughs> excuse me, to live in the tiniest little bracket of history where Christian faith was accepted and adopted by most of the people in our society, right? That's where we get kind of the idea of, oh, this was, was or is, however you want to argue, a Christian nation, okay? That doesn't really exist in, in the big scope of history, right? There's these little fragments of time where there's a lot of people that accept Christianity and accept the faith. I don't know whether or not that will last or even if it's already gone, but what I can tell you is the battle remains. The battle is still going on. Because this is a spiritual battle, the Bible tells us that we need to employ spiritual weapons. Two passages to read here. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're human beings, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, when people feel their way of life being changed or attacked, naturally, they want to defend that way of life. Naturally, they want to try to figure out, well, how do I fight back against this thing? But what the Bible tells us here in this passage is, be reminded of what it is you're actually fighting against. Now, I understand. Um, I heard a couple guys talking about gun control and gun laws and things like that, the Second Amendment earlier today, you know. Um, but remember this, what the Bible is talking about here with us is, okay, there's, there's things that you can do in the human realm that deal with, you know, weapons of warfare that are in the human realm, fine, you can have those conversations. But don't forget, there's also a realm of the spiritual realm that he's saying these are the things you've got to think about as well. This is what destroys those sorts of strongholds. Ephesians 6, 12 to 18 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, and, and don't get me wrong, those spiritual forces in the heavenly places have physical impact in the physical world. And so there's a reason for all these other things that we deal with. <laughs> Um, we, we have to fight in both directions a lot of times. But 
He says, therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. By the way, both of those passages that we just read um, in, in Corinthians and Ephesians there were written by Paul. The same Paul that we find here in this story. The same Paul that faced resistance when he was trying to reach his community. And I think that that is a question that, that we want to ask ourselves when we look at this too. If, if Paul experienced this kind of resistance, Barnabas, the apostles, if Jesus experienced resistance, we should expect that we're going to experience that as well, but we still need to ask ourselves the same question, what does it take, us, take for us to reach our community? How are we to do it? If if someone somewhere had chosen not to try to reach into their community that somehow trickled down to reach you, you would still be walking in darkness. You still wouldn't know the the message of Jesus. Your lives wouldn't be changed at all. So what do we we need to do? do? How do we reach our community? I think we use the same techniques, the same weapons, and the same methods that, that these apostles did. I know, we live in a different time, we live in a different place than they did, but the old, same old message of the good news of Jesus is the same old message 2,000 years later. It's still powerful, still effective, and there are still people that need him. So how can we have these conversations even expecting that many times we're going to be rejected? Well, I think first we need to prepare ourselves, as Ephesians 6 just taught us, And then we need to employ the spiritual weapons as soon as we can. Because here's what happens. And I've seen this a lot in the 20 plus years of ministry that I've done. A lot of Christians, many Christians, never mature to the place where they begin multiplying in their faith. All right? There's a lot of Christians that are sitting in churches all over the country here today that have come to a place where they they have heard the gospel message, they believe in Jesus, they're seeing some healing and transformation in their own lives, they're beginning to live maybe more morally than they lived before, they have a different viewpoint on the world, they're being changed, they're they're genuine believers, but they they get to this spot where they're like, yeah, that's enough. I'm good, so I'm good. And I'm just going to kind of just sit here. And I'm going to wait till Jesus comes back. Or I die, whichever one comes first. And that's just where they stay. But that's not really, as we know, as we've studied the Bible, as we study the gospel, that's not what people are called to as Christians. We're not called to be, we've not been given this incredible treasure just to hoard it and hold it to ourselves, right? We're supposed to be going out into the world. We're supposed to be loving other people with the love that's been poured into us. We're supposed to be people that are engaging with others around us, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we meet resistance, even when people reject us. 
And, and that's a hard thing to do. And guys, I'm speaking to myself as well, so don't feel like I'm pointing fingers. Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard, but it's what we're called to do. It's what we know is the Great Commission, right? You, uh, probably all of you have heard it before. Jesus said, I want you to go out and make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. But I'm going to be with you, even to the end of the earth. I'm going to be with you on this mission, but I want to send you out on that mission. And if the first Christians had just said, all right, well, we're good. You know, Jesus just left. We saw him, and we expect him to be back before we're dead. So it's good. We're just going to kind of stick it, stick right here, and we're just going to wait and hold, hold tight until he shows back up. If they had done that, we wouldn't be here today. We would have never heard the gospel. Jesus said in John 15, 8, he said, By this, my Father, my Father in heaven is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Have you ever heard that verse before? Have you ever thought about it before? I think this is one of those misunderstood verses a lot because a lot of times people read that and they're like, oh man, i got to prove it to God that I'm really a disciple. Guys, that's not what's being said here. You don't, you don't have to, to prove it to God. Uh, he already knows if you're his disciple or not. I think the proving that's taking place here is actually proving it to ourselves. We're actually seeing the fruit of what's happened in our lives as we go out and begin ministering to others. It's not some guilt trip that Jesus was trying to lay on people. It's an opportunity. Because as soon as we are saved, we're given the privilege of sharing that salvation with other people. You don't have to have it all figured out to share your faith. You don't have to get yourself to a level 10 expert, you know, black belt in Christianity kind of a level to, to now share. That's not what, what we have to do. You start where you're at. And Paul and Barnabas had a driving passion to join God in this work. Um, and we're going to see that. It burned in them so deeply that they were willing to suffer extraordinary things to accomplish it. All right, so let's look at verse 8. Here's what it says. It says, now at Lystra, so as they've, they've left Iconium, they come down to Lystra. It says, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul and Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. A miracle that we're seeing right here. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, I'm actually surprised that we don't see more of this kind of thing happen throughout the book of Acts. I think the reason is because a lot of the, the towns and, and villages and cities that the uh, disciples traveled to, they had really fallen to a place in the Roman Empire of more paganism than actual, like, deep faith. All right, so for many of the people of the Roman Empire, it was just like, yeah, the gods, whatever. And we're just going to live life like there is no God. But when you go into some of these other areas, they're still very devout 
in what they believe about the gods and the impact that the gods had on the world. They had these, these old traditions that they held on to. Um, belief in multiple gods is called polytheism. Belief in one god is called monotheism. All right? Christians, we believe there's one god. We're monotheists. But in the ancient Greco-Roman culture of things, they were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. All right? Um, and, and they had them named and, and broken into these different categories. All right? and, and the 12 main gods of the Greek and Roman Empire um, were known as the Olympians. All right? So if, if this is new to you, it's, it's fine. Um, but uh, in Greek mythology, there were those 12 main gods, the Olympians, with Zeus as the chief of the gods um, with his wife Hera. Okay? And each of the gods was assigned a particular domain that they were in charge of. Okay? So Zeus and Hera were the god and the goddess of the sky. I'm going to read all 12 to you here. You're going to, you're going to know some Greek mythology when you're done. Hades, you might have heard of before, was the god of the underworld. Poseidon, the god of the sea. Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Apollo, the god of music. Artemis, the goddess of wilderness. Demeter, the goddess of agriculture. Dionysus, the god of wine. Hephaestus, the god of the forge. And Hermes, the god of trade and messages. Okay? Now, there's a whole other set of Latin names for these. They're the same names. Um, Jupiter, we won't get into all that. You don't need to know all those. Okay? But there's 12 of them. All right? And so they have their little zones, their worlds. And different towns would select different gods as their protector. And they would build a temple in these different cities. It was kind of like their mascot. Um, and this is, what, this is who we're all about. And so here in Lystra, where they're at, it was Zeus, the big guy. So like, they have a temple of Zeus here. And so when these men walk in, normal men, they show up, but then they do this radical miracle in front of everyone of this guy who they've all known since he was born. He's never been able to walk a step in his life, completely crippled since birth. And this guy walks in and says, hey, you, stand up. And boom, he's completely healed. Of course, everyone who's gathered around is like, the gods are here. The gods are here, and it's got to be Jupiter, or, or Zeus. It's got to be Zeus, because, I mean, why else would he come to some place unless it was, his temple was here? And the way that that worked, Hermes, you might have noticed, the god of trade and messages, they said Paul was that guy because he's talking all the time. He's like the messenger god. And Barnabas, he must be Zeus because he hasn't said anything. He's just kind of, you know, walking in and being Zeus, I guess. And so with all of that, they're like, we got to worship. Call the priest of Zeus. And he brings in oxen. They're ready to slaughter animals and build an altar and just everybody worship because the gods have shown up. All right? Powerful thing going on here. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, this, this sort of way of viewing God, to a living God. Not the myths, not the fairy tales who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. 
For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So they slowed him down here for a minute, but look what happens in verse 19. But Jews from Antioch, that was the first city that we looked at two weeks ago, and Iconium, <coughs> Iconium, the city that they had been at before, they came and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So just as quickly as they are willing to stop everything and honor these guys as gods, they're willing to kill them and toss them out of the city like garbage. That's what's being said here when they're saying they're stoning them. They literally pick up rocks and throw them at a person until that person is dead. All right? Now, what a turnaround, right? I'm not sure how Barnabas avoided the same fate that Paul did because it says they only stoned Paul. I've got a feeling that it probably has something to do with the fact that because Paul was the one talking, they're thinking he's Hermes, and they're like, well, we're not going to touch Zeus just in case. I mean, Hermes isn't really our guy anyhow, but if it's Zeus, uh, who's going to throw a rock at your patron saint? You know, I, I'm not going to start. Let's just leave him off, but let's tell this other guy how we really feel. Um, now, as far as I know, none of us have suffered that degree of persecution for our faith. Okay? But many of us have gone through things in life where we feel like maybe it's not direct persecution for our faith, but we feel like God's let us get beat up. Right? I think most of us would probably say, there's been some times in my life where I'm like, God, you're letting me be beat down. That's one of the questions I have here when I read this. I'm like, this guy Paul, Lord, he's trying to serve you. He's trying to do what you're calling him to do. He's offering his time, his energy, his resources to come and bring the gospel. And you're letting him get beat down. Right? And many of us have had experiences like that where we're like, God, where are you? How have you let this happen? Now, sometimes the things that happen in our lives, the bad things that happen in our lives, it's, it's consequences for our own decisions. We can handle that most of the time. When I'm like, I did that stupid thing. I deserved what I got. All right? I'm okay with that. But sometimes, lots of times, the biggest things, the heaviest things, we didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Bad things happen to good people too, or for, to, to bad people too, but bad things happen. Paul, he didn't rob someone or rape somebody in this city. He just told them God's plan for salvation. And he was attacked and left for dead. But look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, here's the thing that I want you to see here. I don't think anyone would have blamed Paul if that was the end of his missionary career. You're stoned, you're left for dead. Somehow you regain consciousness, whether that was miraculous that he had been dead and God raised him up, or if it just knocked him out cold and thought he was dead and somehow he stumbled back to his feet. I don't know. But nobody would have said, all right, Paul, you know, it's like, yeah, that's your pass. You've done enough. You've already shared the gospel with these other towns. Some of these people became believers. It's good. Like, call it quits, go home. 
right? I wouldn't blame the guy for that. It's one thing to be ridiculed or the target of verbal attacks, but it's another when you're the victim of attempted murder. But what does verse 20 tell us? On the next day, he limps to the next city and keeps on preaching. Why? Why? Were these early Christians just crazy? Or were they just stubborn? Maybe a little both, I don't know. But I think a better descriptor is that they were motivated. They were motivated. And that's what I really want us to talk about here today. What motivated these people to share the gospel and keep on sharing the gospel even when things didn't go the way they wanted them to go? And I'm going to give you three motivators for ministry here today that I think we can pull out of this, this passage. Number one, the first motivator was their calling. These guys had a God-inspired mission. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I, I mean, actually, if we go far enough back into Acts chapter 9, when, when Paul is converted, because remember, Paul started out persecuting the church. He, he wanted nothing to do with Christians and Christianity. He wanted to wipe it out. But in a radical uh, transformation where he was blinded on the road to Damascus and God spoke to him audibly and, and transformed his life, Paul received a calling from Jesus who said, you're going to go and you're going to serve me. And he received that call and said, all right, I'm doing it. Similar with Barnabas. We don't know his con conversion story and we don't know what that calling was completely like. But we also saw that when the church in Antioch in Syria sent them out, that's what had happened. Remember, they had been together. They were fasting and praying. They had been serving there for quite a while. And as they were doing that, the Holy Spirit, it tells us, um, spoke and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the job that I've got for them to do. They were called by God to go and do this thing. All right? They knew God's voice and it had been confirmed. And when things were difficult, they could remember that calling and hold on to it. When Paul is getting up off the ground, bloody and aching and hurting, he can remember, well, God called me to do this. God called me to do this. I know it's been confirmed. He's called me to do that. And I think that that's important for us to understand too, because when we question our calling, when we question the Great Commission, do I really need to go? Do I really need to make disciples? Should I really teach people about what Jesus commanded? What do we do? We think back to our calling in Scripture. We think back, this is what Jesus said to do. Okay, I read it again. Back in Matthew, all right, yep, there it is. That's what we're supposed to do. We can be reminded of that calling. Secondly, the second thing I think that motivated them was love. Just good old love. And love is quite a motivator. It's a great motivator. When we love someone, we are willing to experience great suffering for that person. And when we experience God's love for us, it generates a love for others in us. And before long, we begin to love the world because God loves the world. Not just generally the world, but every single person, even the unlovable people. Guys, you cannot hate people and love God. You can't. I'm sorry. It's incompatible. People have got their issues. People are frustrating. There are some things that some people do sometimes that you just want to hate them, but you can't if you're a Christian. 
You can't. So go on and tell yourself now, I can't. I cannot love, or I, I must love, I cannot hate. I can't. They're incompatible because God is wanting to drive a, a level of love deep into our souls where it becomes the core of who we are because that is the core of who God is. God is love and he's making you people of love. So they're motivated by their calling. They were motivated by a love for people. And third, they're motivated by an eternal perspective. These missionaries believed, I think wholeheartedly, they believed that this life is the tiniest little fraction of human reality. Tiniest little fraction. These bodies are temporary. Life is short. And a day is soon coming when all things will be made new and will be put right for eternity. Paul also wrote this in Romans 8.18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that even means getting hit in the head with rocks, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He believed that there was something beyond this life that was of eternal value and glory that was so big and so beautiful and so amazing that no amount of suffering in this life could dim it. When we suffer or see suffering in this world, it is hard, though, to hold on to hope and keep going. Even if we believe in an eternity, it's hard when you're in the middle of suffering and you're in the middle of pain and sadness. It's normal to question God and to ask him, where are you, God, in the middle of all this that I'm going through? This is when we hold on to the truths that we know about God. He loves you. He is there. He is with you. And Jesus himself went through anguish, torture, and despair. Uh, Tim Keller, in his, his book, The Reason for God, writes this. He says, In Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Therefore, though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. Guys, I can't tell you all of the detailed reasons for the suffering and pain and sadness and things that you will have to go through in your life. I can't. Christianity doesn't give all the details of all that stuff. We want, we want it to. We want to know why. That's one of the biggest questions that come when life gets hard and hits us. Why, God? Why? Why did this have to be this way? Sometimes we get answers. A lot of times we don't. But what Christianity does provide and what he's describing here is it does provide the resources for actually going through it. Jesus himself went through suffering and pain. You remember Jesus in the garden? What did he say to the Father? He's like, if there is any way, let this pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. You give me the strength to get through what I need to get through here. Jesus felt the same way. He's like, I don't want this to happen. Is there some other way besides the cross? Because if there is, I pick that. But that's not the way it was. We don't have all the answers this side of heaven, but we can have hope 
And what is our hope? It's the hope of the resurrection. We believe that one day God will make all things right. I don't know how, but he will. C.S. Lewis, um, in, in talking about this and suffering, he said, some people, <laughs> he said, they say of some temporal suffering, so temporary suffering that we go through on this life, that, that no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Wow, that's a big statement, but he believed in a big God. He says, look, right now we look at something and, and, and we're in the middle of it and we're in the pain. We're like, God, there's nothing you can do to fix this. There's nothing that can make up for this. And the sort of suffering that I've gone through here in this life, there's no way that that can be fixed some way. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is, no, 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 you're thinking in human terms. Because there is no way in a human way that that can be fixed. But God's beyond that. And what he says is, I don't really know how it's going to happen. But someday, somewhere, when all things are made right, there's going to be some sort of backwards working, mysterious glory machine that fixes even those things. And we're going to be able to look back and experience greater glory through all of that that we'd had to go through. And these same things that motivated these apostles can motivate us. Calling, love, and internal perspective. And it can keep us moving forward. And I know, guys, when you come to church and you're like, oh, yeah, I listen to a pastor and he talks about the Bible. Uh, you know, everything's been easy for him his whole life. Um, guys, I've struggled with doubts about God and doubts about my, my faith and the Bible and the church and gone through those things too. But when I find healing and I find understanding and I find transformation and I see those things happening in my life, it moves me to want to help others find the same thing. And I believe, I look at this too, and I'm like, this is what I see in my life. I believe that God's called me to do this. I believe that he's growing love in me for other people. I might or might not have been at one point in my life the sort of person that said, I hate people. That may have come out of my mouth at some point. I apologize, I've repented, right? It's not that way anymore. I love people, even the people I don't like, I love them, <laughs> you know? And, and that's part of the work of God in my life. And he's given me enough of an eternal perspective to choose to swim against the stream of culture. And that is worth living for, even dying for. That's why Paul would get back up and go back to work. Let's finish here in the last little sections. Verse 21 says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So these apostles were called to preach the message, teach the ways of Jesus, establish churches, and move on. And we don't know the exact timeline of all of this, um, they probably spent at least weeks, if not months, at each of these places. I know when you read Acts, it's like one verse after the other, and you're like, oh man, they're constantly on the move. It's like that whole thing lasted for four days. No, it, it actually took quite a bit of time. Um, and that also explains why they would go back to these cities. You're like, wait a minute, you're going back to the place that threatened to stone you? You're going back to the place that did stone you? Um, yes, they, they let things cool down. 
And they knew that there were new believers growing in their faith in these cities. So even though they'd been run out of town, the message had still taken root. And people were believers growing there. And think about that. These believers, they didn't have written gospels. They only knew what they had been taught by Paul and Barnabas. The Bible still, we've got, we've got quite a bit of time here. It's, it's not till the, toward the end of the late, late middle end of the first century that the first gospel is even written. Okay, so, so this is before all that. This is in the 40s. There's, there is no gospel. <laughs> only what they've heard. Only what the apostles have taught them, each other, and the Holy Spirit. But God was growing his church. In verse 24, it says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. I'll just uh, show you here my second. I told you I'd have another map for you. Let's pull this one up. Um, this one, again, still hard to see. So this is where we were. Derby, Lystra, Iconium. So this is the, the trip home. Back to Antioch, Pisidia. Then back down here to Perga and to Adaliah. Okay, um, now, it will go on and read verse 26 to 28, the end. It says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled, where they started from. And when they arrived, they had gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So here is a, another map. Here's your whole return journey. So, they came through here. Here's Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, down here. Get on a ship, sail back through the Mediterranean Sea, back over here to Antioch where they first began. All right? And then um, one more. Uh, I'll show you the complete route for those of you who, who have this in your head and you want to know this. Um, we started here in Antioch. We started on the orange route. Remember, we came through here to Cyprus. They went all the way through Cyprus, met Elimus the magician and all that good stuff. Then they got on their ship and they came up here, came up to Antioch and Pisidia. Then, as we saw today, they came through here and then back. And that was the loop and that completed, that's the entire first missionary journey. So hopefully you have that in your mind now. That whole journey took about a year and a half probably, between 46 and 48 AD. And they returned to where they started from and celebrated the great things that God had done. So one final thought in this um, so much of the work of the church happens outside of the gathering of believers. We're gathered here together as a church on a Sunday morning. And a lot of good stuff happens here when we gather together. We learn, we encourage each other, we worship God, we get built up and strengthened and encouraged. An amazing part of the work happens when we gather. But we're called to be a church that gathers together and then scatters out into the world. Each one of you have different spheres around you. Your different jobs and places you go to school and work and your neighborhoods and the people you know and your family. All of us are then scattered out into the world. And we're placed there to minister as we live our lives. And it's very easy to lose our motivation sometimes to do that. It's very easy to just say, you know what, somebody else will get to them. But God calls us to do it. And I just pray that today... May, that God would remind you of the calling that he has on your life and that he might fill you with his love for others and he might give you an eternal perspective and that those things would motivate you to minister to the world that he's placed you in. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. 
And thank you for the example that we have through the apostles. We are all uh, beneficiaries of the work that they did and they started 2,000 years ago. And Lord, our lives have been enhanced and radically transformed because of the message that we have heard from you. And Lord, I don't want to assume here today that everyone in this room is a, a believer. And so, Lord, you know the hearts. You're the only one who knows hearts. And if there are any here today that don't know you, Lord, I pray that this transformation that we've been talking about, that they would experience that. That they would experience what it is to actually know the living God. That no longer they would, you know, have either no God or a false God that they worship, but instead that they would come to know you, the one true living God. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you, would, um, you would move on people's hearts in that way. But also, Lord, for those of us who do know you and have been experiencing life with you, I pray, Lord, that you would motivate us to step into the world around us. We have thousands of people around us right now, right at this very moment, that are without hope, that are without faith, that are without direction and purpose in their lives, people that feel alone, people that are scared, people that are, 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 are feeling like there's, they're trapped, that there's, there's no purpose, there's no hope. But you have come to bring life to people who are in darkness and light to those people. And you do it through us. You do it through your people. And so, Lord, motivate us. Remind us of our calling today. Fill us with your love. Give us that eternal perspective. And Lord, give us opportunities to spread the good news of Jesus to the people around us. And in that, Lord, may we return even next week with stories of how you are working through us to reach others, to bring the good, good news of Jesus and salvation to other people. Help us in this area, Lord. We know it's a spiritual battle. We need spiritual weapons. We need spiritual strength. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be the one that's empowering us to do these things. That we wouldn't do them for our glory, Lord. We'd do them for your glory. That you would be honored. You'd be lifted up. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.